Well, again, something that's kind of cool about uh, our live feed is that we can be with people that uh, we don't normally gather with during this season. And uh, Jack and June Cease in Ontario, Canada, I saw you're here, so glad you're here. And Bill's friend, I didn't get your first name, but your last name, Mooney, you're joining us too, so we're glad you're here joining us for this service. And uh, what a great time to celebrate what Jesus has done. And so he has risen, he has risen indeed. This has been the proclamation of the church for almost 2,000 years, and rightfully so. Because this is the lightning rod event that validates and vindicates the, mis- the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And really is what gives the gospel hope. And it's good news for all who will respond. And if, if it didn't happen, then Jesus is just a good man who died a tragic death. And there's no hope, there's no purpose, there's no meaning, and we have no hope after we breathe our last breath. There's no hope even in this time of uncertainty. But he has risen from the dead. And that's not just because I say so but because he has changed lives and he has changed history. But today, as we look at the Gospel of John, and if you have your Bibles, you might want to open up to John chapter 20, we're going to see that his resurrection is both profound, that is, it changes life's reality, but it's also personal. That Jesus meets people right where they're at. And we're going to see that in four episodes in John's Gospel where Jesus meets individuals or a group, and he meets them exactly where they're at. But as he meets them, it is also abundantly clear that this has changed the game. This has changed all of reality. So this is what the resurrection brings. Let me enter into a word of prayer before we dive into God's word, okay? So let's pray together. Again, Lord, we're so grateful that you have risen from the dead. You have come for us. And now we can have life in you. Lord, if there's somebody out there who has not yet put their faith in you, I pray that you would be beckoning them to yourself and help them see the glory of the risen Lord. But we say hallelujah. What a Savior who is not dead but has risen from the grave. And because you live, we can live too. And so we're grateful, Lord. So help us to see what you have to show us today in your word. And it is in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. All right, so beginning in verse 1 through verse 10 here. We'll just set the scene for what's happening. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked into the, at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of lining laying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple had reached, excuse me, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. 
he saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So as we enter into this story, we need to understand. We need to understand that the impact of the crucifixion, it devastated Jesus' disciples. They were in shock. They were stunned. They were numb. They just did not know what to do. But what's interesting is not one of them recalls the many times that Jesus would say, look, the Son of Man must be betrayed, rejected, arrested, mocked, beaten, crucified, and then rise from the dead. It didn't appear on the radar of their mind, their thinking. And now his missing body just added insult to injury. But that's going to change here in a moment. See, because the impact of the resurrection is both personal and profound. So let's pick it up again at verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over the, and looked into the tomb. She saw two angels in white seated there where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking that he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my God, my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he said these things to her. So the first person we meet is Mary, the brokenhearted. Now what's interesting about the Gospels is there are lots of Marys in the Gospels. In fact, there are five in Jesus' life. There's Mary, his mother. Mary of Bethany, who was the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who he raised from the dead. There's Mary, who was the son of John Mark. We meet her in Acts, because she owns the place where the upper room is, is kept. We meet Mary Magdalene here. And then we meet, in this, actually the Gospel of, of Luke, Mary, who is the mother of James and Joseph, and the, and the husband of Cleopas. But here's the point. There are lots of Marys. Now here at Berean, I counted this week. You know how many Nathans there are at a church of about 300? There are five. There's me, Nathan Brand, Nathan Onstead, Nathan Meyer, Nathan Prito, Nathan Knauer. All associated with Berean. And just a church of 300. So you would think that in Palestine, where Mary was a pretty common name, Jesus ran into a lot of Marys. Okay? In fact, Carrie and I were, were just joking this week. Said We should have named all of our daughters Mary. Then we would get it right every time. Mary, come here! No, the other Mary. But 
here's the point. Here's why I'm going into this point. Is that the authors of the gospel through the Holy Spirit name each one and delineate each one because Jesus came into their lives and changed them. And by the way, it's also reason to believe that the scriptures are authentic. Because, you know, if you were writing this thing, you say, you know, there are too many Marys in the story. Let's just, you know, Joanna, you know, Susan, whatever. No, they delineate every Mary. And so this is Mary Magdalene, and Jesus has quite a history with her. See, she was a person who came from the town of Magdala up in, in Galilee, and she had seven demons in her. She was probably out of her mind, out of control, and completely ostracized, completely an outcast, a social pariah to those around her. I mean, she was probably just this crazy lady. And people were saying, stay away from that crazy Mary, right? But Jesus, Jesus comes and he sets her free, giving her back her mind, giving her back her life, and he gives her meaning and value. And realize again, within first century values, you had value in relation to the male you were closest to. For Mary, it wasn't her father, it wasn't her brother, it wasn't an uncle. It was Jesus, the risen Lord. Seeing her, not as a, hear her seeing, him seeing her not as a sexual object, but as one he came to redeem, to set free. So when he set her free, Mary becomes one of his followers. Somehow she comes alongside of him to support him financially. I don't know whether she had wealth herself or she gathered with a group of women. We read that in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. But she becomes one of Jesus' most loyal followers. And she's fearless. You know, while the the male disciples, his 11, are hiding. She goes to the cross. And she goes to the tomb when Jesus is being buried there. And now, on this third day, she is there as well. But the most important person in her life has been ripped out of her life violently. And now she's just looking to pick up the pieces, whatever she can salvage, to find his dead body, the 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 body of her dear rabbi. Perhaps some of you can relate to that brokenheartedness in Mary. Someone who's significant in your life has passed on. They've died. And it seems like a chunk of your heart has been removed. I know five years ago when my father passed away, I felt like that. I was just kind of almost listless in some moments just because of feeling that grief. But Mary was stuck in her grief. She can hardly see past her tears. She's not even phased when two angels show up. She, okay. What happened to his body? And then when she sees Jesus himself, she can't recognize him. She thinks he's just a gardener. She's clouded by her grief, by her tears. You know, Psalm 34, 18 says this. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now, that's something I often write somebody who is grieving. And I don't write it just to make 
spiritual platitudes. It's be, it is really a reality. So often God meets us in our grief, in our sorrow, more than he meets us in our good times and our blessing. And so the risen Christ is going to meet his disciple Mary as he speaks her name, Mary. And I can just imagine what this was like. She hears and recognizes his voice. It's the truth of John 10, 27, where Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And it's like the veil is removed, the cloud is removed, and she can see him. And she shouts out, Rabboni! And grabs him. The one who gave her life. The one who gave her value, purpose, and meaning. And by the way, that should be true of every follower of Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives us life. He is the one who gives us value and meaning. Not everything else. He's now alive. Has been restored to him. It's the truth. That's revealed that life is found in him. And as we sang earlier, the grave has no claim on him. Death does not have the last word. It's the truth of what Jesus says in John eleven twenty five: I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And it points to the greater reality for those of us who are in Christ. Those we've lost loved ones in Christ. We will temporarily experience grief, but it will turn into joy. Listen to what the Apostle Paul would say about this. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again so that we believe that God will bring Jesus with those who have fallen asleep in him according to the Lord's word. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. And that whole passage is a sermon in itself. I can't go there today. But here's the thing. Jesus lost, excuse me, just as Mary lost Jesus, we who've lost loved ones in Christ will be restored to them with great joy. And we will always then be with the Lord face to face. We won't see through this mirror dimly lit anymore and as we wait as we wait it creates hope it also creates longing back in 2009 my wife Carrie lost her mom and it was in close proximity to Easter and she said it brings a whole new meaning to that after having lost her mom, Martha, knowing that she will see her once again face to face. 
And it removes a little bit of, of attachment to this world and creates a longing for a better thing. So back to our story with, Martha, with, with Mary. Did I mention that she was clinging on to Jesus? So much so that Jesus says, um, Mary, you need to stop. You need to stop because I'm, I'm going to ascend back to my Father. And by the way, I have a mission for you. I need you to go tell my disciples about what you've heard, what you've seen, and what I've told you. And so she does in verse 18. She says, I have seen the Lord. And she goes back to the disciples. And he, she tells them all that Jesus told her. Now what's interesting about this is that she's an unlikely witness. She's the first witness to the resurrection. And she's a woman. Now that doesn't mean anything to us in the 21st century. But in the first century, you have to know that the testimony of a woman was not sub, submissible in a court of law. She's an unlikely witness. And Jesus honors her for her love and her loyalty. But it also brings on the reality that God uses the things that are seemingly weak, seemingly foolish, to shame the things that seem wise or strong. And that's another reason to believe the Gospels. Because if you were concocting this, you, your first witness would probably not be a woman. But she goes back, tells the disciples, and John doesn't really record their response. But the Gospel of Luke records it, and they view it as nonsense. <laughs> well, let me tell you, they will soon learn differently. And so we have our second group. That's the ten disciples who were in fear and despondent. Pick it up at verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, <laughs> he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed that they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. For if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This group, this group of 12, now 11, well actually 10 disciples, they were the in-group. They were the ones who Jesus poured his life into for three years. They were the ones who were supposed to continue Jesus' ministry. But they were hiding in fear, reliving and perhaps rethinking what they so boldly proclaimed just a week ago shouting Hosanna to the son of David. But Jesus supernaturally breaks into their locked room and appears to them. And he graciously addresses them, saying, Peace be with you. <laughs> Allaying their fears. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I ask the question, how would I react? I'm in the locked room, my Lord has been crucified 
and I'm not expecting this, and all of a sudden he's standing there saying, peace be to you. That would freak me out. I guess Jesus knew that. And he graciously invites them to touch his pierced hands, his pierced side, to show them he's not a ghost. He's not a hallucination. He's not a spirit. He is the resurrected Jesus Christ. In fact, in Luke's account, he asked for a piece of food to eat just so they know that he has returned from the dead. Jesus' body has come back to life. And now, so much of what Jesus has said previously, it makes sense now. It didn't previous now, but it does now. And this event, with the combination of receiving the Holy Spirit, is completely what changes these men from those who are cowering in fear to bold witnesses of Jesus and his resurrection and his gospel. And let me tell you, if you know the rest of the story, these men, their lives will be threatened. They will be told to don't talk about this. And they will be beaten and punished. But they're not going to keep quiet. Because they know the risen Savior has commissioned them to bring this good news to the world. You know, Church history tells us that 10 out of the 11 apostles here, they all go to a painful death. Peter will be crucified upside down. Thomas with a spear run through him. The only one who escapes it is John, who ends up going into exile on the island of Patmos. But here's the thing. None of them recant. None of them recant because they are living the truth of the resurrection. And they counted a privilege. They counted a gain to suffer for him and even to die for him. And it's the reality of what their Lord taught them. And just here's a sample from the Gospel of John. Jesus said to them, before the crucifixion, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls and dies to the ground, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it proceeds and produces many seeds. And anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me will follow me, where, and where I am, my servant will also be. And my Father will honor the one who serves me. You know, maybe you're feeling fearful, uncertain, during this time of this COVID crisis, and you're feeling vulnerable, you want to pull back, you don't want to expose yourself because you're, you're anxious that you might experience loss. And let me hear, tell you that I'm not here to judge you or shame you. But here, Jesus is reminding us of the truth. And his disciples discovered that you don't have to live for a world that's passing away because it will pass away. And then when you give of yourself, when you give of your life, actually the seed of the gospel, the seed of his kingdom multiplies. It expands. And when you give your life for Jesus and his gospel, you actually end up saving your life. It's gain. And there's a promise of his presence where my servant is, there I will be also. And there's the, pr the promise of God the Father honoring you for all of eternity.
This should make us bold for him and for his kingdom because we cannot lose. We cannot lose. The Apostle Paul will say this in his letter to the Romans. For none of us dies to ourselves alone and none of us, excuse me, for none of us lives to ourselves alone and none of us dies to ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. He has got us. He has got us. And we are alive. Whether we're on this side of heaven or the next. It ought to make us bold. The resurrection. Unfortunately, there was one disciple who was missing in the gathering of the ten. His name was Thomas. Thomas who doubted. And so let's read about him in verse 24 through 29. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means the twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Through the do- Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Here he comes again. And then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. And Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen him, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Again, Thomas was not there at the first showing of Jesus to his disciples. And that is actually a blessing. God sovereignly controlled that. You know why? To show that what those men experienced was not just complete groupthink. Jesus, again, appears to the disciples specifically for Thomas. To show him. To convince him. He allows him to put his fingers in his pierced hand. And in his pierced side. And maybe you feel like you're Thomas. You're not just going to take anybody's word for it. You're not going to just surrender your brains to the door in blind faith. And that's okay. If that's you, that's great. Because there are plenty of good and rational reasons to believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to seek that out. There are plenty of great resources, starting with one called A Case for Christ. There's also um, many others in uh, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. The first one is by an author named Lee Strobel. But here's the point. There's plenty of of good reasons to believe that Jesus indeed has risen from the dead. Let me just give you five as a sample size, okay? First of all, Jesus is a historical figure. He's not like the Easter Bunny. He's not like Santa Claus. He's been recorded in the Bible. He's been recorded outside of the Bible 
by an author named Josephus and Philo, okay? So he came into this world. We may disagree what happened, but he's recorded. Second of all, there's the empty tomb. Okay, there's the empty tomb. Now, Jesus had plenty of opponents. And what they would have liked to have done is to produce Jesus' body to show that he is not a resurrected Lord. But they can't. And let me tell you, they put an armed guard, Roman soldiers, in front of the tomb to make sure that he wouldn't rise from the dead. You can read about that in Matthew's Gospel. So, you know, a few fishermen aren't going to overpower a cohort of professional soldiers. No, he rose from the dead. And he was seen by more than 500 witnesses. So this is not a, it's pretty amazing to say, oh, it was all hallucination. 500 people? I don't think so. But more so, what compels me is the changed lives of the disciples themselves. As I mentioned already, first of all, they were cowardly in hiding. And then they become bold witnesses and willingly give their lives for this gospel, for this resurrection message. You don't do that for a lie. You can't hold it together like that. It doesn't work that way. And then there's, there's what I call a hostile witness. You see, there were two men whose lives were changed by the resurrected Christ. First was Jesus' own brother, a man named James, who while Jesus was walking the earth, said, eh, I don't think so. But then he saw the resurrected Christ. Even more so was a man named Saul of Tarsus, who was persecuting early Christians, who was persecuting the church. And Jesus reveals himself as the risen Lord to him on the road to Damascus and changes him from Saul to Paul. And he makes him one of the most powerful proponents of Jesus' resurrection and the gospel. In fact, he writes the majority of our New Testament. How does that happen? if he has not risen from the dead. Again, great compelling reasons. And if you're searching, that's great. And if you want our help, please call. We'd love to give you some great resources. But I think Thomas was not so hung up on his doubts. I think he was more operating in self-protection. He was operating in self-protection. You see, he didn't want to be disappointed again. He couldn't, believe him, he couldn't bring himself to believe one more time and be disappointed. Even though his friends were telling him, look, I've seen the Lord. No, I can't, I can't go there. I can't do that. I can't put myself out there. I cannot trust and believe. And maybe that is you today. Maybe at one point you kind of put all your eggs in, in God's basket and you felt like they got smashed. Something happened and you just can't go there again. <laughs> you can't put yourself out there again. And I want to tell you this. This is a common experience for many of God's saints. If you look in the Bible, Job, <laughs> who has both his family, all of his children, and his wealth taken away, wondering what happened. David, who's anointed as God's king, spends a good amount of his life on the run. And then later on, he's on the run from his own son, even while he's king. 
And yet God met him there. <laughs> From modern tales, Johnny Erickson Tata, as a young teenager, has a diving accident and becomes a quadriplegic. Wondering, God, what good can you bring from this? And God uses her powerfully today. Artist Jeremy Camp, who marries his sweetheart, who has ovarian cancer. She dies at the age 21. Wondering, where, where is God in this? I want to tell you that the resurrected Lord wants to meet you within this, within this fear of disappointment. Call out to him. Say, Jesus, I need you to reveal yourself to me once again. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. Don't insist on why as to whatever happened to you that disappointed you. I found that you can either have why or you can have God. But oftentimes, you can't have both. Okay? And number two, give it some time. Because God operates in seeing the whole picture rather than just one little segment, one little, one little portion of life. I want to tell you a quick story about a man named Dan. Dan, at age 18, went to the University of Nebraska. And he wanted a letter in some athletic sport. And so he tried out for the freshman basketball team. Gave his all. He was a tall young man, 6'5", and he got cut. Now maybe that's not a devastating thing on a, you know, a grand scale. But for an 18-year-old freshman, it was pretty devastating to him. But then on a whim, he goes out to an intramural wrestling meet. He ends up beating the heavyweight on the varsity team. He goes, maybe I should wrestle. Let me just say, forward, fast forward six years, and he had never wrestled before. Fast forward six years later, he's on the Olympic wrestling team for the United States in 1960. Fast forward four more years later on, he becomes the bronze medal uh, winner in the 1964 Olympics. That man, Dan, was my father, Daniel Brand. And when he talks about this, he would say this was serendipity. God had to say no to basketball in order that he might say yes to me in wrestling because God sees the whole big picture, the big picture. And that's what Jesus was doing with Thomas. And so back to Thomas. He sees him now. Resurrected, body pierced, side pierced. And now he says to him, my Lord and my God. And it's the truest confession so far of any of the disciples and the apostles. And he's saying, I don't, I don't even fully get this, but Jesus, I'm all in. And Jesus responds this way. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Who's he talking about? He's talking about you and me. 2,000 years later. You see, the irony is we don't have Jesus walking around with us anymore, although we would probably like that. But the truth of the matter is, is that as we start out our journey of faith, we're probably putting our faith in the reliability of these eyewitnesses. 
men who gave their lives for this. But over time, their reliability doesn't change. But as we see the Lord at work in our lives, and as we experience a track record, we no longer believe just because of their testimony, but because of our testimony of seeing the living, risen Christ at work in our lives. And so we say, my Lord and my God. Maybe you need to call out to him and let him reveal himself to you in that way. Well, the last person we look at is Peter. Peter, the one who failed. And so we go to uh, chapter 21 here, and I'm just going to paraphrase because I don't have time to read the whole story. But Peter had seen Jesus risen from the dead. But previously, he denied Jesus three times that he even knew him. So things weren't quite the same. So he decides to go back home to Galilee. And his buddies follow him. And he decides to go fishing. And he goes out one night and he's fishing all night. And they catch nothing. And early in the morning, as they're returning, they see this man on the beach. And he cries out to them and says, Friends, have you caught anything? They say, No. He says, Hey, well, throw your net on the other side of the boat and see what happens. And suddenly, their net is completely filled. 153 large fish. And they hauled in. And John says, It's the Lord. Peter jumps into the water. They're pretty close to the shore, and he makes his way out there. And Jesus is waiting there with hot bread and fish on a spigot on a, over, a, over a hot fire, and they have breakfast together. And this is where we pick up the story. Verse 15 of chapter, chapter 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He's talking about the 153 fish, which was probably a year's wage there. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. A third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Church tradition has it that Jesus was crucified upside down. And then he said to him, follow me. Simon Peter believed himself to be a failure. (laughs) Yes, he had seen the risen Christ. Yes, he'd seen the risen Messiah, but he'd also denied him three times. He swore to heaven, I do not know the man. And so he feels like he has disqualified himself. So he's not sure what to do, and so he returns to what he knows. It's just fishing. 
And unfortunately in this story, he's not very good at that. But Jesus meets him where he's at. And Jesus shows himself the truth that failure, now listen to me, is an event, not a person. Failure is an event, not a person. And Jesus fills his nets to show him that he can once again make Peter, who failed, a fisher of men. And then Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. Do you love me? And it's a bit painful. Jesus asks him three times to counteract the three times where, Jesus, where Peter had denied him. The three, three times that he failed in his relationship with Jesus. But not to reject him, but rather to restore him. To say, I'm going to use you, Simon Peter, to feed my lambs. To tend my sheep. And maybe you feel like Simon Peter. <laughs> you feel like you failed. You feel like you're disqualified and you're useless. You've gone too far. <sighs> now, I want, I want to say that Jesus doesn't erase our failures. I mean, it's not like they go away. And sometimes Jesus allows us to experience the consequences. But he can take us and use us and even use our failures to accomplish his purposes. In the 1700s, there was a man named John Newton. John grew up in a godly home but became a slave trader. He captured Africans and sold them into slavery and all the other immorality that went with that. And John knew he was going against God's will. But <laughs> through a few uh, violent storms on the sea, God got a hold of John Newton's attention. And finally, John turned away from that life and turned to Jesus. John Newton became a pastor, and he wrote a song many of us are familiar with, with Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Newton also had a profound impact as he became a pastor of a man named William Wilberforce, a representative in the British Parliament, who then did a personal war against slavery because of his faith in Christ, showed the horrors of it, and eventually was the, the force that God used to end all slavery in Great Britain. God took John Newton in his failure and made him a profound influence on William Wilberforce to release men and women. God used his failure. And here's the other part of this. The gospel. The gospel says that our failure is not greater than his grace. Our sin 
is not greater than his salvation. It can't cancel that out. In fact, I think it does make us more grateful. Again, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Do you know what a failure, what a sinner I was? And yet God's grace is greater. It reaches out and pulls me to himself. And it does not nullify his ability. Our failure does not nullify his ability to use us. In fact, it makes us more dependent upon him. To see him at work in us, rather than us trying to drum it up in our own power and our own strength. And Jesus will use Peter in a mighty way. He becomes the leader of the early church. He's the one to whom all gather and follow. The first among equals. And really is the one who preaches the early sermons where 2,000 people come to put their faith in Christ. But if you read the book of Acts along the way, Peter will fail again too. I should say the book of Galatians. The Apostle Paul catches Peter in a moment of hypocrisy where he separates himself from Gentile believers. But when Paul confronts him, he's not devastated by that. But rather he leans into the grace of God. Knowing that his grace is greater than our sin. And that he can use our failures. So your failure, my failure, it's not beyond his grace. He can use it. But we must, we must turn around and we must follow him. Again, let's read Jesus' last words to Peter. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And then he says, follow me. See, we can't call the shots. If we do, that's where we run aground. We must let him lead. We must let him be in charge and even go to places where we don't want to go. But know in that, those places, even there, he meets us. He's got us. And in our failure, we actually become trophies of his grace. So on this Resurrection Sunday, my prayer is that the reality of the resurrection will hit you personally <laughs> if you're brokenhearted, if you're fearful, if you feel like you have doubts, or <laughs> you're just protecting yourself from disappointment, or whether you failed. No, the resurrection is for you. And I pray that it will hit you profoundly, knowing that this life is not all there is. In fact, living for it is foolishness. He's got a greater kingdom that we can live for, and that he has got us. He's got our life 
in this life and into a glorious eternity. And that is the glory of the resurrection. So walking in that truth, it allows us to boldly proclaim. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me pray for us, and I'll have the worship team come up and close us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are an amazing Savior. You meet us where we're at, but Lord Jesus, you also meet us just with a new reality that we need not be fearful if we're in Christ because you are the resurrection and the life. And even if we die, we live. And Lord Jesus, for those of us who are in Christ especially, I pray we'll be able to lean into the, the reality of this. But I also pray that we'll lean into the fact that, Lord Jesus, you are resurrected Christ and you live within us. You give us the power to live your life. So, Lord, I pray that you would stir up within us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And I pray we live glorious lives for you. I thank you again for being our risen Savior and Lord. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. Let's worship him.